Macro Podcast number 404 for April 23rd, 2014, brought to you by MailRoot, the secure hosted email filtering service, and two Citrix products. First, ShareFile, the professional way to share files, and GoToMeeting, the powerfully simple way to meet and collaborate online whenever you need to, wherever you are. Welcome to another Macro Podcast. I'm Chris Breen. I'm back after uh, some spring breaking and a little bit of illness. And once again, my partner is... Hi. Hi, Chris. I, I, was, I was waiting for a drum roll. I uh, always wait for the drum roll. That wasn't the voice I was expecting. I mean, not... No. not, not I'm, oh, okay. I'll well, just go. It's cool. No, no, no. I was, I'm glad you're here. But uh, I was expecting uh, Ren on the other end of the line and... Uh, yeah, sorry. She's uh, she's feeling under the weather this week, I understand. So I'm back filling in instead of the last two weeks where I filled in for you. I'm filling in for her instead. So I am the new host of this podcast. Uh, that's what I was Basically thinking. I think answer. if you do it three times in a row, you become the host. So um, I look forward to your ad reads later in the podcast, and um, that'll be great. It'll be it'll be fantastic. I think it's it's like kind of like trial by combat, only it's trial by podcast. Excellent. Okay. Well, you win then. Uh, but I will start this off anyway by talking a little bit about um, – this is related to an article that we did earlier in the week. And um, there was some commentary on the Apple TV and that maybe it wasn't everything it could have been. And while I don't agree with everything in the article, for example, it said that uh, this person found the Apple TV unreliable, and I find mine pretty reliable. I, I used to find the Apple TV unreliable, particularly the first, first version, but the third and fourth seem to be working pre- pretty well for me. Um, but one of the things I, I have noticed, particularly since the Apple TV has added a couple of channels this week in the History Channel, uh, what, what are the other two they added? Uh, A&E and Lifetime. So if you're a fan of the tearjerker of the week, yeah. that is where you can go. You know, and I'm not a big fan of any three of those, any of those three. Um, I used to be A&E, but there's stuff on there that I don't particularly care they're, for. They're, they're, not, they're, they're not the bastion of programming that they once were, I yeah. think. Yeah. So um, I want to get rid of the things, and as I, I know I can do it, but as I look at my Apple TV screen, I realize that it's getting kind of dense. There's a lot of stuff on it where it wants it before, and I thought, yes, give me more content, more content. Now that I've got it, I'm not happy <laughs> because too I find there's too, too much, much stuff. So the question is, are we getting to the point where Apple needs to rethink the interface for this thing? Um, are you happy with your Apple TV and the way it's organized, or or do you agree with some of the comments that came out in that story? Uh, you know, for me, I I don't watch that many of the channels that are on there. But Chris, it's really it's really a simple procedure. You just to hide a channel, you just select it, then you hold down that select button until the icon starts to dance around, then you hit the play pause button, then you choose to hide this item, and bam, easy. Like that takes only like twenty seconds per icon. So you know. Bam, really quick. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I think that's no, more I, of a bam. <laughs> yeah, the slow motion. No, it's. I agree with you wholeheartedly. It's. It was really nice when it first launched with this interface because it felt very iOS-like, right? Like, oh, there's a button. I, you know, like I, I click on that button and I get to the thing that I want. But because it's not a touch interface, right? You're using a remote. It means that every time you're, you don't just get to like scroll and pick something, right? You have to actually cursor your way over it. Um, and so I agree completely that they need to rethink what this looks like. Um, and I think this is a problem that a lot of the other, uh, 
set-top box makers are having too, right? Roku has, they have like an insane amount of channels, right? Like a thousand or something? Yeah. And even Amazon with the new Fire TV, they have a bunch of different can- uh, channels. And they're all coming at it from different directions right now. But Apple does seem to be lagging behind because it just keeps pouring more channels into it. And it doesn't do anything to make it simpler. Um, I heard someone suggest, I think one of our, our Ursula colleagues at one point suggested folders, which to me I think is a terrible idea because that seems like I don't want to spend time organizing my my content channels, right? Yeah, like, that seems counterproductive. I want to just go to the thing that I want to watch, and if you may, if I have to start drilling down in folders, that is not a good interface design decision. Well, let's put ourselves in the shoes of the people that have to redesign this thing, because I, I think it has to be done. If we're going to get to the point where we have the kind of content that we've all been clamoring for, there are going to be a lot of channels and, and good on them for doing it. But what does that end up being? I know that there's at least one person listening now who says, well, just use your iOS device and navigate it through through that interface. Mm. Yeah, which is not great. Yeah, I mean, you can. But a lot of people have fallen for this, well, it's only 99 bucks, and so get one. And they do, and then they get Apple's silver remote, which I think is a very nice-looking remote. Mm-hmm. But then, as you say, you click around on this remote, so what's that going to look like? Is it folders? And it's, I think, as you have said, it's not ideal, but what does it become? How do, how do we do this? Do we end up just hiding a bunch of channels and then create a favorites list, or what? I think, I mean, Amazon's implementation, so I have a Fire TV, um, okay. and I've only used it a little bit, but um, I'm interested in the thing that got me using it was the voice search. Um, that really intrigued me because it seemed like, okay, that's a cool idea. I can just, you know, hit this little voice search button on the remote, say, you know, I want to watch The West Wing, you know, and it should tell me all the places I can go watch that. It's not quite delivering on that promise yet, but I think it's it's in the right direction. Um, I should be able, you know, it, this browsing is an important part of thing, but I think a lot of people are going in expecting something more along the lines of search, right, or mm-hmm. some sort of queue system, right, where they can say, here are the things that I want to watch, or here are the things that I watch regularly in the case of TV shows. Just tell me when there's a new episode available so that I don't have to go looking for it. Um, and the biggest problem with that right now is that all the, there's like, you know, 10,000 different content providers, as we're saying. So how do you meld in the information from all of those different sources and provide sort of a cohesive look at the things that you want to watch? And I think if Apple can solve that problem, that is a huge step. Uh, and Amazon's trying to do this. They haven't quite gotten there yet, but they're, they're improving slowly. They're, I know they're adding more vendors to the voice search thing. So some sort of integration, I think, with Siri would be fantastic. Like mm-hmm. if I could say to my iPhone, hey, Siri, I want to watch the latest episode of, oh, I don't know, The Blacklist or something like that. And Siri just goes, okay, and then just you know knows that I have an Apple TV, is smart enough to realize, probably want to watch on the Apple TV. Um, or I can say, like, I want to watch this on my Apple TV, and then it goes and finds it and puts it up on the Apple TV. Bam, done. Like, in a lot of cases, it's easier right now to use AirPlay, I find, and AirPlay stuff to my Apple TV from my phone than going to find it on the same provider on the Apple TV. So they got to figure out a way to deal with that. I think that's a very good point. Uh, when Apple comes out with this, I think you've got a case. We'll, we have a time-stamped podcast now, and when it happens, I think you're in for the big bucks. Because, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, Siri implementation makes a lot of sense. Having a spotlight kind of search functionality in there makes a lot of sense as well. I think we've gotten to the point where we have so much content that going through channels and kind of an old-style cable box 
interface seems crazy to me just because there's so much stuff out there. What might be nice, and and I'm hoping to get some of Apple's money as well by suggesting this, <laughs> um, is to have some kind of TiVo intelligence built in there so that there are a lot of times it's great. You know what you want to watch, but there are other times you have no idea. It understands what your play history is. You say, just show me a light comedy. And it will go out and check what you've watched in the past and say, oh, Chris, I see that you like screwball comedies from the 40s. How about this one? And I know you haven't seen it before. And by the way, I also happen to know that you're a fan of Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn. So I know you've already seen Bringing Up Baby, but you haven't seen it for three years. How'd you like to watch it again? Yeah, I mean, smarter stuff, I think, is where it's at, right? We The whole point of having technology in your living room is so that it can do some of the heavy lifting for you. Uh, and so let's really try to smarten these things up and see if we can figure out a way where it can anticipate the kind of thing you want to watch instead of just reacting because we've had that forever in some ways. Oh, I got to go to this channel. I got to go at this time, you know, and we've, we've sort of taken that in slow, uh, you know, evolutionary steps as we go along. But I think, you know, the, the technology exists to be smart enough to sort of get ahead of where the curve is. And so I definitely want to see that. And and I think I kind of hope that, you know, the sign of Apple continually just dropping small channels in is kind of a tacit, you know, acknowledgement. Yeah, we know this system isn't working very well mm-hmm. right now. And we realize this isn't sustainable. And, you know, to my mind, that suggests that maybe they're working on something more significantly as an overhaul to come out at some event, you know, bigger, bigger deal in the future. But yeah, it's, if they just sort of sit there like blindly twiddling their thumbs for the next year and like, yeah, we're just going to keep adding channels. And then you have like a hundred different channels. I think a lot of us are going to be throwing up our little silver remotes in frustration. Absolutely. And also the kind of channels they give us. So for example, the ones that they did Monday are three channels that you can access if you already have a cable or satellite. Right. That's one of the worst things. I mean, like, so cable, okay, I kind of get what they're doing here. You know, the cable companies need to protect their interests. The one that gets me is I think you can't watch the ABC app unless you have a cable provider. And it's like, I can get ABC over the air. Yeah. You know, I have an HD TV. It has an antenna hooked up to it. I can switch over to that TV and get HD broadcasts. Um, I realize that they're not necessarily, I don't know what the ad situation is on that app because I've never used it because I can't because I don't right. have cable. Um, but it is ridiculous to me that they need to, you need to log in with a cable account for things that are otherwise available for free. So uh, that's one reason I'm also still an Aereo subscriber, unless the Supreme Court decides to shut it down by the time you've listened to this podcast. Oh, we should talk a little bit about that. Explain what that is. Yeah, Aereo is kind of a cool little startup. Um, I believe some of their offices are actually based around Boston, where I live. Um, And the idea is they provide sort of a system for streaming broadcast television over the internet. Now, how does this work? The the way they sort of sidestep the idea of, you know, getting into the spectrum and like uh, rebroadcasting and things like that is that they have these giant like warehouses that are full of tiny little antennas and each customer is assigned their own little antenna. And so since you have this tiny little antenna, I think they're like, you know, we're talking in the centimeters or something range. Um, the idea is you are still consuming that content as though you have an antenna hooked up to your HDTV. Um, so it's not necessarily being rebroadcast. It's just that you're renting an antenna on which you pick up those broadcasts. Um, so you can actually stream live TV directly to your iOS device, your Mac, any anything that has a web browser in it, essentially. Uh, and the cool feature is that they also have a 
sort of cloud-based DVR system. So you can tell it to record a particular channel at a particular time and then watch that later. Um, it is still, uh, it's region locked. So they are building out sort of like these little antenna, you know, warehouses in different places. And it does mean that there are still some issues with like, if you are, I'm pretty sure if you, I'm in like San Francisco on a work trip, I don't think I can actually stream stuff from my Boston station. I might be able to get my DVR stuff. I haven't really tested this. Um, but I know that I'm pretty sure you can't like stream live TV across the country because mm-hmm. they want to get around, don't want you to get around like the, uh, sports blackouts and right. stuff like that. And again, they don't want to run afoul of sort of the networks, which is the big foo for all they've had is a lot of the networks accusing them of stealing <laughs> broadcast stuff. And it has elevated itself all the way to the Supreme Court. And I believe they are hearing that case. On Wednesday. Yeah. And, and to me, this is just crazy because clearly somebody has put together or designed this technology simply to get around copyright and uh, and licensing. You know, I mean, it's it's such a crazy sort of hacky way to get this content that nobody should have to do. Simply, you know, right. like pay somebody or here, ABC, here's your... 89 cents that you get this month for your content and and that's enough but instead you have to say all right look we're going to go back to the analog model and everybody gets a little antenna and we're somehow going to deliver that over the internet and i have to wonder what what's going to happen when they take it to the supreme court because i i'm not sure the people sitting on the supreme court at least the majority are all that technically adept no but they know i mean they know the laws and i think that's where it comes in i i you know i i'm not i'm a lay person i'm not a lawyer it seems to me that they've specifically, and I'm, you know, Aereo obviously themselves, I'm sure before they even like started, you know, development on this, researched this thoroughly yeah. to make sure that it was legal. Otherwise, you know, they realize they're getting out on a, on a limb there. Um, but to me, it seems, I agree, it's the perambulations they have to go through are ridiculous, but it does seem like it's all above board to me. And I, granted, I am also a subscriber here, um, but uh, it is it is so weird that you have to like so the, you know the signals are bo- bouncing from you know from the spectrum to an antenna in a warehouse then over the internet to your house and it's like well wouldn't it be a lot easier if we cut out the middleman and abc was just willing to stream me their content um directly online but no that's not gonna happen and, and keep in mind when i'm streaming stuff from area when i'm streaming live tv I'm getting ads, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm seeing all the advertisements that you're seeing on your, uh, when you watch it on your TV. So I'm not getting it for free any more than the sense of anybody who is hooking up an HDTV antenna to their TV is getting it for free. The, inf- this, this stuff is floating around in the, in the sure. airwaves right now. I'm not, I'm not stealing anything. So yeah, I find it, it's a fascinating technology. I, I don't think that the broadcast guys have much of a leg to stand on, but they have a lot of money and sometimes right. that can really help make your case. Well, I think in this case, maybe the people working for uh, Vero just say, well, okay, imagine this scenario. I've got an antenna and I'm going to string a cable that goes 400 miles to my television. Is that legal? Well, technically, if you could boost the signal, I suppose it is. Okay, so instead, I'm using the internet for that cable. Is that legal? Hmm. Well, it is a series of tubes. And let's see. <laughs> if you use a tube instead of wires, that's somehow different. Well, I guess it's okay, but... Uh. Maybe we should have gone to law school. That's where all the money is. You think? Yeah. Arguing before this. Technology court. law school. Yeah. 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 Well, I think there's a correspondence course for that over the internet. <laughs> probably not legal. Uh, probably not. Okay. Um, 
Well, that was good. So let's take a break. I want to talk a little bit about MailRoot, the secure hosted email filtering service. And then we're going to be back to talk about, let's talk about a survey. As you might imagine, I use email a lot and I find spam and viruses and bounced missed email a complete drag when using it. That's why I've taken a look at MailRoot. MailRoot is the leading cloud service for email protection, and they don't read your email in order to show you ads. There's no hardware or software to install or maintain. MailRoot simply receives your mail, sorts it, and it delivers only clean email to your mailbox. No more spam. It's reliable. It's redundant. There's no single point of failure, and it's always up to date. MailRoot is easy to use, reliable, and trusted by single users, as well as universities, governments, and corporations. Its interface lets you view and manage your quarantine and whitelists and blacklists, or you can manage it all from your daily quarantine notifications. Its focus is delivering clean email, and they build their interface and tools with administrators in mind. They even have an API for easy account management. MailRoot supports LDAP and Active Directory, TLS, mailbagging, outbound relay, in short, everything that you want from the people handling your mail. Simply change your MX records and MailRoot is protecting your hardware. There's no crypto locker infections and no heartbleed exposure. To remove spam from your life for good, go to MailRoot.net, that's M-A-I-L-R-O-U-T-E dot net slash Macworld for a free trial and 10% off for the lifetime of your account. So I, going through the internet, I noticed that the Pew Research Company, who I suppose has to take surveys every once in a while to justify their existence, uh, talked to people and they surveyed them about the future of technology and what we're comfortable and what we're not comfortable with. Uh, Did you happen to run across that survey? I I did glance at it. Um, It seemed interesting. It's sort of the, the survey of, it's like the science fictional survey. Yeah. Um, I would have expected this from the pew pew Internet Research Center, <laughs> but um, yeah, it was kind of interesting in terms of, you know, how basically how pessimistic slash optimistic people are about technology invading our, our lives, which maybe is like, you know, closing the barn door after the horses have gotten out. But um, yeah, because what the people are uncomfortable with is and I think this is what what's getting the play really is people are uncomfortable around things like technologies that invade our privacy. And, and like you say, I think that's sort of the horse has left the barn on that one. Um, surveillance, which mm-hmm. because of the NSA stuff, um, lab grown meat. So if you, um, on the other hand, you know, I think if you, if you love cows and chickens and pigs and goats, I suppose, um, would it not be more humane and better to not kill them, but instead of uh, make, little lab grown well states. it's always interesting to try and figure out where the line is between things that people are genuinely uncomfortable with and things that they're uncomfortable with because they're new right yeah. i mean there's a lot of stuff that you come it comes along and people are sort of initially like well, that's kind of off-putting but you know eventually you kind of acclimate and and realize well this isn't isn't that weird or isn't that much weirder than it, something we were doing before um and I think every new technology experiences that for everything from, you know, smartphones uh, to uh, probably the telephone, right? You know, when the telephone came along, people were like, well, they really have to talk to people, mm-hmm. like their voice. Like, that seems weird. Can't I just write letters or telegrams? Um, and, and, you know, in some of these cases, I think there are, rightfully, there are concerns. I saw one of the things they were talking about was um, like designer babies. 
Mm, uh, yeah, you know, yeah. if you could pick sort of the DNA, like alter the DNA of your child before it's born to select for certain attributes, um, you know, kind of a brave new world uh, Gattaca thing or whatever. So uh, I think, you know, there are definitely some concerns in there um, in terms of meddling around with that level of science. But I also feel like there's probably a slippery slope in that, you know, people who have, you know, who conceive children that might have some sort of disease, for example, like you could make the argument like, oh, there's, you know, there's a genetic marker that's going to cause mm -hmm. this, this child to have problems or it will not survive as long as it could. And, you know, I think a lot of people would say, yeah, you know, let's let us make that change in order to ensure that this, this child is healthy uh, and actually gets to live, you know, a long, healthy life. Um, but, you know, there's obviously a line when it comes to, well, do, can you do that? Oh, this kid's going to have brown eyes. I really wanted blue eyes, mm -hmm. right? You know, the, like, should we be doing it if for just sort of small aesthetic things, or should it really be restricted for cases where there's actually health concerns? But, you know, once you open that door, it's hard to take it back. Right. And the danger is that you end up with a population where every person looks exactly like George Clooney. And, uh, you know, how would that you be so bad? Well, I guess you're right. It wouldn't be that bad. And, you know, with the personality of, I don't know. Who. Um, right. And then I think there's also the, the frog in the water syndrome. If you were to look today at what happens to technology and a lot of stuff, people are kind of okay with like uh, privacy concerns go, yeah it's not perfect but well what the heck if you look you know if you were to jump from 20 years ago to now and look at the kind of stuff that's going on with the nsa and other kinds of surveillance i think people would be outraged and people would be hauled before congress and and thrown in irons whereas over this 20 year period we kind of go yeah oh a little erosion here a little erosion there and next thing you know it's it's Big Brother, and I'm I'm not suggesting that's really the case, but there are there are those who do. So when we talk about some of the stuff happening in the future, yes, people are naturally concerned about surveillance and privacy, and even lab grown meat. But maybe 20 years from now, it isn't such a big deal, and instead we're looking at kind of medical developments where you can live to be a hundred and not be unhappy at 100, but actually be reasonably fit. And we've eradicated some terrible diseases, which I think is where all the positives were in the survey. Yes, we're looking forward to these kinds of advances. But on the other hand, we don't want people looking through our stuff. Yeah, or apparently having ubiquitous implanted devices. I mean, okay, that's, that's what that one got me. You know, it's like, oh, you're gonna put. Oh, I don't like it either. Yeah. I mean, that's like I have a very negative view of anything that involves like <laughs> surgical stuff. But I mean, you know, for example, my my mom has a pacemaker. Yeah. Um. You know, like there's, you know, that's something that's for a medical reason, not for like a hey, I have a computer in my arm. Right. But it, it again, there is this slippery slope of there are people out there who have already done these sort of like implant a computer in themselves. And, you know, you look at plenty of science fiction stuff from, like, The Matrix, what have you. Um, this is this is a common idea. And a lot of times those ideas that seem really outlandish in science fiction, you know, 20, 30, 40 years later, they're, they're every day. They're commonplace. Um, and given the, given the levels we're at now, it would not surprise me to see implanted devices, implanted technology be a thing in, you know, within mm -hmm. the next half century. Um, but, yeah, I agree that, you know, as someone of the here and now, it seems vaguely uncomfortable to me. I don't think it would be something I chose. Um, but there are probably plenty of people out there who are like, you know, bring it on. Sounds cool. Okay, well, we'll archive this. Uh, and 20 years from now, 
Uh, I may back. not, but you will return to talk about this. I will this. play it back in my little implanted ear device and, and be say, like, ha wasn't I silly then? I was until I had that brain change about five years ago. <laughs> now I feel great. I, I love, love everything. Thanks. <laughs> Government surveillance, bring it on. All right. More of that, please. Um, let's talk. Uh, let's. Oh, you, you brought up something about um, in our email before this about Google and Apple and um and exclusivity in terms of content. Yeah, uh, specifically games. Um, Apple and Google, according to a report in the Wall Street Journal from earlier this week, Apple and Google are sort of going head-to-head in trying to snag up exclusive deals for games. Um, so in some cases, that might be you know, a game that's only available on one platform, but it seems like a lot of cases it's more like things that are available maybe for a short while only on one platform before going to another platform. So, for example, a game might debut on iOS and then several months later appear on Android. Um, and this, you know, games are big business, especially on the in the mobile realm. So it's not really surprising that this is happening. And if you look at past indications, this has happened on a variety of other places like game platforms. There are generally, you look at the game consoles, and there's generally franchises or titles that are exclusive to one developer that are sort of used to draw people to that platform, especially when new consoles are launching. So, you know, last year when we started to see the uh, Xbox One and the uh, PlayStation 4 coming out, you know, they'll each tout their own particular, oh, we've got this game, we've got this game, um, and you can only get that game here, right? And, and so we're starting to see that in the mobile realm as well. And well, it doesn't seem as though it's necessarily a case of the companies offering, you know, money essentially to the game publishers to say, bring your title over here. Um, They can offer them things like promotion, right? So Mm -hmm. you go into the app store and you see a giant banner for EA's new game that comes out today. And honestly, that's going to translate into downloads. Um, And so it's advantageous to a certain extent for those game companies to say, yeah, let's go exclusively with with this platform so that we get all this free publicity and free marketing and it really boosts our sales. Um, there's, there's not really anything necessarily surprising about this, just the, that the, um, it has shifted in this way from some of the, uh, you know, game consoles down to the mobile market has become such a battleground for, uh, for gaming titles and for, for eyeballs, um, that this is, you know, it's not immune from any of this sort of quid pro quo setup. So I thought it was interesting. Yeah, and they've been doing this in the music business on iTunes for quite a long time. So they they try to get a particular band in there or get like Beyonce's mm-hmm. album before somebody else does. And so, yeah, they they make a promotional deal saying, yeah, we'll give you a little promotion in exchange for having your content. They certainly did it with the Beatles. They've done it with other bands. And so I do think it's interesting that it's crept across now. At least into games, I don't know about other kinds of apps. What Apple has maintained in the past is that they have an editorial team that just looks for the best stuff. And so they're not influenced by how big a developer is or any other kind of clout that that developer may have. But instead saying, no, this is awesome and we're going to feature it. That seems to have changed now where, yes, maybe this is still awesome, but it's important for us to have an advantage over Google or Google going the other way with Apple that we get this because this is a high-profile thing, whether it's good or not, and sure. we want to be able to call, you know, claim this as our own, basically. Um, but I think, as you say, a lot of people aren't influenced all that much by it. You know, it's not going to compel me to go out and get a Galaxy phone, for sure. example, because they sure. have a particular kind of game. 
So I don't know if right. it's just bragging rights then, just saying, well, look, we've got the Beatles, and, and we've also got Plants vs. Zombies too. Yeah, I mean, and I think it's it's more significant taken in aggregate than taken in, in any isolated example, right? If If Apple continues to pull down major game releases like this, and continues to have, you know, an exclusive advantage over Android, that might help it in the market share, you know, war mm-hmm. versus Android in terms of shifting people one or the other, because when somebody goes to make a choice between what phone they're going to buy, they may be influenced by the fact that a lot of the titles are coming out for one platform or the other. Um, and so I think, you know, as a trend, it's important. You're right that as an individual, you're not going to say, oh, man, that game's only available on this platform. Well, I'm going to go out and buy a new phone. Yeah. Um, but people also do more things with their phones than they do with, say, their game consoles, which are designed – well, they used to be designed primarily to play <laughs> games. I guess now you do lots of things on them. Um, so, yeah, I, don't, I think it's just interesting as to – it speaks to the marketplace, as you're saying, in terms of changing what they're, what they're promoting. To, uh, to Apple's credit, the, the App Store does seem to still have a pretty broad selection of things that it promotes, and it does tend to see, to promote – in my experience, anyways, apps that are truly good, regardless yeah, yeah. of their size. But it's also hard to deny that there's a definite influence from tight, you know, big publishers like GameLoft or Electronic Arts. Uh, you know, when they come out with a new title, it it doesn't do small potatoes, right? Yeah, yeah. It's got to be pretty bad in order to not rack up a lot of downloads. So you know, there's there's weight always begets weight to a certain extent. But at least I think there is still a a practice of featuring the smaller stuff as well, right? And now we're going to take another break and talk about the first of the Citrix products that are sponsoring this podcast, and that is ShareFile, the professional way to share files. Most of us rely on email to communicate with our clients and coworkers, and when we do that, we're swapping files, things like contracts, spreadsheets, and presentations. And in some businesses, it's imperative that these files stay confidential. Yet, some folks send them as regular email attachments. Well, there's a better way, and that way is ShareFile by Citrix. Instead of attachments, ShareFile sends your documents as secure links, so you can quickly send files of almost any size, control who has access and for how long, and receive email alerts when files are opened and reviewed. Plus, ShareFile is easy to use and will help you work more efficiently. This keeps everyone on the same page with shared folders that sync automatically, and you can access from anywhere using your computer or your mobile device. I've recently started exploring other file sharing options and have come to appreciate the many advantages offered by ShareFile. Sign up today for a 30-day free trial. There's no obligation. Just go to ShareFile.com, click the microphone at the top of the homepage, and enter Macworld. So remember, visit ShareFile.com and type in Macworld. So a couple of days ago, Apple came out with a new commercial. And there were a couple of things that I thought were interesting about it. One is that it was narrated by Tim Cook. And this is something that Steve Jobs didn't do in the past. He was offered the opportunity to talk through a commercial, and he chose not to because he didn't want it to be about him. Tim Cook has made a different kind of um, decision on this one. And the other one is that this is very much about green technology, Apple in the past has done these ads where they talk about their innovation, and that's part of this as well, and they have the factory shots. But the second half of the the ad really is about green tech, which I think is great because I happen to agree with them. But um, also I wonder about, um, to an extent, the sincerity behind it. One of the things they talk about is that they want to make this a you know more sustainable and they're going to use 
stuff, less packaging, and they're going to use greener tech in these things. But at the same time, they're making increasingly these devices that can't be updated so or upgraded. So you get uh, a new iMac and you can't really work on it. You can't add a bunch of stuff to it. You can't upgrade the processor, for example. You get a new iPhone or an iPad that's really hard to get into and do anything with. So what people tend to do is they pass them along or they turn them over. So I kind of see both sides of this where it's not in Apple's interest to have you keep a device and upgrade it over six years. Rather, they want you to turn it over every couple of years. But at the same time, they go, yeah, but we also want to be green. So I wonder where that balance lies. Well, it's an interesting distinction. Of course, this is, this was part of Apple's whole update their environmental progress report that they do every year. Um, and this year happened to coincide very nicely with Earth Day. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was uh, no doubt a big part of it. Um, I think you're right that there is sort of an inherent conflict there. But I do think, you know, the whole upgradability thing, I know that's a, quite a, uh, a matter of some contention among different camps. Um, and while I'm someone who has spent a lot of time in the past investing in upgrading their computers, I don't tend to anymore, in part because you can't as much, mm-hmm. right? I can't put in new RAM. But on the flip side of that, I also don't feel the need quite as often. Um, my main computer right now is a 11-inch MacBook Air, which I've been using since 2011. Um, and honestly, the earlier this year I had, a uh, uh, my, the SSD in it went and I had to replace it. And I actually did this myself, um, which was kind of cool. Like I actually pulled open the computer, got a new SSD from online, plugged it in, set it all up, copied all my stuff back over and it's working great. And part of me was sad because I was like, oh man, dead SSD. That would have been a great excuse to upgrade my laptop. It's yeah. been almost three years. <laughs> I was like, oh, well I put a new drive in and it's working great, right? Like there's. There's no problems with it, and I honestly don't feel, you know, here I am using a computer that's a few years old, and I don't feel any desire to scrap it for something else. Apple's not yet come out with a product that I feel like is so much above what I've been doing with my MacBook Air that I that I need to upgrade. Um, in part, you know, on the computer side, I think that's because those, those technologies have matured so much in the past few years. So, you know, I'm I, someone, you know, as someone who used to like essentially hot rod their computer, mm-hmm, yeah. right? I, I found that I've, you know, maybe I was just because I've gotten older too, but, all, you know, it doesn't matter to me as much what's under the hood. You know, 10 years ago, if you asked me, I could have told you every single spec in my computer, how fast the processor yeah, yeah. was, how much RAM, what kind of RAM it was. Um, I built a couple PCs for gaming purposes, and I picked all the components and built them by hand. And, you know, nowadays you ask me, I don't even know what process. <laughs> I'm not sure how fast the processor in my MacBook Air is. All I know is it gets stuff done, mm-hmm. and for the most part, seems to do it pretty quick. Um, I'm not a person who's necessarily in the market for a Mac Pro. Um, I do have a, an iMac that I use for work, and pretty much the same thing there, where it's like there's nothing. Its performance does not lag in a way that I feel like, oh, man, I really need a better computer. Um, and so I think these devices have longer lifespans that they used to. And, and to your point, you said a lot of a lot of these devices get passed along. And I think that you know that counts to a certain extent yeah. in terms of in terms of lifespan, right? If that device gets a second life for at least for another year or two in somebody else's hands, you know, your kids or your parents or your neighbors or what have you, um, that's that's a long time for that thing to last. I mean, it's not presumably sitting in a in a landfill, mm-hmm, right? Um, the mobile side's a little trickier, right? Because, you know, a lot of people upgrade their phone every couple of years. Some people upgrade their phone every year or every six months now with some of these carrier plans they offer. Um, and I don't feel like those get passed along as often. 
um, in part because they're cheaper, mm-hmm. right? So people feel like they're a little more disposable. Um, and you're right that they, the repair stuff on them isn't quite as useful. Although Apple does also, you know, if you break something on your phone and then you give it back to them and they give you a new phone, they take that phone and repair it and then right. sell it as a refurbished phone or give it out to somebody else as a refurbished phone. Um, so, you know, it's within their interest to be able to turn those things around. Um, but yeah, there is a weird sort of inherent conflict in that. But I, at the same time, I feel like it's less of an issue than it might have been, mm-hmm. say, a decade ago. Yeah, I agree with you, uh, even though I set up the question. because i do think that it's not because performance isn't what the issue that it once was that it used to be you'd you'd get a new computer and then the next year one would be so much faster and it made a huge difference particularly when we started working with media files that that you would just have a computer that was a year and a half two years old and it just wasn't capable of doing what you run out of space oh yeah right you ran out of space you couldn't you were very limited on the amount of memory you could put in the thing um upgrading the hard drive wasn't a big deal but but like you i used to do processor upgrades uh hard drive upgrades just anything i could do to make this thing any faster and so i would tend to keep computers a long time simply because i couldn't afford a new one um but now that i'm just rolling in money um, i'm still not um and no i'm not um i'm still not upgrading my computers all that often because as you say they're pretty darn fast now and yes i would like to have a mac pro for doing video work but i don't do that much video work um so i can continue to do what i need to do with uh, actually my main computer is from 2009 i think i'm using yeah, yeah. a mac pro from then and it's still very capable I, I wish it were a little faster i'd love to throw a new processor in it but uh those days are gone and otherwise i'm using a macbook air that's really fast i mean the ssd in there and the processor is great well it's interesting in the direction they've gone with upgrading the technology is kind of it's like retrofitting stuff in some ways, right? Like rather than just making the processors faster and faster and faster, they at a certain point they topped out, right? Like they're like, oh, we can't. It's not as easy as it yeah. used to be to just crank up the clock speed, uh, especially when we're really concerned about things like heat mm-hmm. and power, like and battery right. life. Um, and so instead, they're like, well, let's let's get rid of the hard drive, right, and go to something like the SSD. And that is just, I mean, of all the things that have made an improvement in my productivity and like and processing power over the last five years it's hands down a solid state drive yeah because everything just feels so fast um and you know comparing it with something that runs on a traditional hard drive um it really i have a mac mini hooked up to my uh tv as a media center and i believe that has a one terabyte hard drive in it and it's a fast computer. It's not that old. It's maybe two years old. Yeah. And yet it chugs sometimes. And I realize it's all the disk. It's just that constant hitting the disk has made it slower. Um, and, you know, that's it's funny to realize that because that is some such a – it's sort of like a sidestep in the technological evolution. Well, we kind of did what we could with processors. And, yeah, processors will continue to improve. But that's not the metric that we judge things by anymore. Yeah. And I found the same thing, that in this Mac Pro that I'm using, I put an SSD in there. And it's just so much faster now. And every once in a while, I have to – oh, yeah. But I have to switch back to the uh, the other drive every once in a while. <laughs> oh, man. This thing is so slow. And I can't wait to get back to the SSD. And once I am, I'm just – I'm a happy guy. Yeah. That was actually my Christmas present for my dad this year is he's using a, uh, a MacBook Circuit. Uh, 2000 i want to say eight 
It's the one-off aluminum MacBook yeah. that had like no FireWire port, mm-hmm. um, and so it's one of the last ones where you can you, uh, last like MacBook MacBooks, I guess, where you can like swap out the hard drive and everything and change the RAM and um, and so. I took out the hard drive and I put in an SSD, which I think was something you actually recommended at some point in one of your yeah, one yeah. of your columns. Got a nice Samsung SSD for like less than a hundred bucks and put it in. And it's a 2008 computer. It's like six years old, and it now it's so fast now, right? It doesn't have a modern processor. It doesn't have a ton of RAM, but he doesn't do a lot. With yeah. It. And so every once in a while, when I think of maybe you know upgrading his computer. Um, you know, I go and ask him how it was, how it was working. It's like, oh, it's great. Yeah. It's so fast and zippy now. And it's even a little bit lighter because I took the hard drive out. Um, you know, and so that's, that's cool that you can get that much light and it can run Mavericks, right? Like, yeah. you know, it's a, it's a six year old computer that's running the most current OS and has really good performance. And it's like, wow, that's, that's something, right? Like this is a different market from the market that we were looking at, you know, 10 years ago where it was all about like getting people to upgrade on a cycle every three mm-hmm. years and stuff like that. Computers can last a really long time now. So I think that's cool. Yeah. Okay. Well, Apple, forget what I just said. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you're doing great. Keep at it. Uh, but one other point on, on that ad is that uh, about Tim being the voice how do we feel about a nice guy running Apple? Now, he, he may just be acting to be a nice guy. You know, maybe in real life he's not, but I, I suspect he is. Uh, how do we feel about that? We had kind of the autocratic Steve Jobs, who people very much admired, but kind of, you know, you didn't want to get in the, in the eye of Sauron with that guy. And, and yet with Tim Cook, you kind of feel like, yeah, if I bumped into him, I wouldn't fear for my life. But here's somebody who cares very much about um, lots of things, you know, green technology, cares about climate change, cares about uh, human rights, and is vocal about it. I mean, not to the point where he's obnoxious, but is kind of pushing the company in a more humanitarian direction than I think Steve Jobs did. I, You know, I think it's great. I, and I think it's kind of what Apple needed after all those years of Jobs. And, and it's it's interesting because, you know, we're still kind of feeling it out in some ways. You know, we're getting into sort of – I think we're starting to see what Tim Cook's Apple really looks mm-hmm. like. Um, and to me, that's that's a really interesting transition um, because it's the same company and yet at the same time, it's not quite the same company. And there's the lingering effects of the stuff that Jobs did, but it's now being filtered through the lens of Tim Cook. Um and and it's weird because people always have a strange relationship with corporations, you know, despite the Supreme Court saying they're people. Um, <laughs> they're just I, really, really big and powerful really and rich people. people. Um, it's, it's weird because people have, you know, love-hate relationships with them. Um, and people always want to assume, you know, there's a cynical uh, mindset where people always want to assume it's a corporation, right? It's there to make money. It doesn't care about you. It doesn't have feelings for you, right? <laughs> and you know, you're viewed as a sucker, essentially, mm-hmm. if you think anything contrary to that. Um, and so it's hard because I think we all want, you know, on the one hand, some of us, we really want to believe that Apple and its, its you know, spokespeople like Tim Cook actually believe what they're saying. But at the same time, we're kind of afraid of looking naive. Yeah, yeah. Or gullible in believing that a, you know, a corporation actually has its, your interests at heart. Um, and so I don't know. I mean, I, I honestly, I, I read a lot of the stuff they put out, and I look at a lot of the the figures and stuff. And and if you dig deep enough, yeah, you can find flaws in the company. But I think what 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 heartens me more than anything else is the fact that it does seem like they admit to flaws. Mm-hmm. 
uh, and definitely more than they used to. Um, certainly, there there were occasions where Steve Jobs would come out with a mea culpa. I'm thinking of like the iPhone 4 antenna right. um, issue. But I feel like Tim Cook, in some ways, is more proactive about it. Like there was this story in the um, I wrote this story about the Apple environmental report earlier this week. And there's a story that they use and kind of they're using it as a talking point, to be fair. But they did a survey. They do surveys of all the like they measure the amount of greenhouse gases they put out and they use certain industry standard methods for doing so. And they said, well, we use a lot of aluminum. So we actually want to be a little more uh, thorough with with figuring out how many emissions we're generating in all this aluminum that we use. And so they went and did their own study on it. And it turned out the numbers for emissions for aluminum was four times higher than the industry standard accounting. Mm. And, you know, they could have said, well, we're just going to keep going with the industry standard accounting. And they would have uh, their overall greenhouse gas number would have decreased by something like 10 percent, I think. Mm -hmm. Instead, they said, well, you know, turns out this is a lot more damaging than we thought it was. But they said, you know, that's that's what it is. We're going to try to improve it. But that's we're not going to you know cover up that number. Um, so their greenhouse gas emissions went up 9% year over year. Um, they're like, yeah, that sucks because we really wanted them to go down. <laughs> like that was our goal was to get these things to keep coming down. But, well, you know, we can't <laughs> – we're not going to cover that up, right? <laughs> um, so, you know, there's certainly a case of – it looks good for them even to say that, right? Yeah, yeah. So you, you can view everything through a cynical lens of saying, well, they wouldn't have said that except it was in their, you know, best interest to make it look like they were – doing the right thing and it's like well yeah at certain point you got to decide if you're going to give them the benefit of the doubt or not and the thing that it always comes back to for me in any of these cases is that i, I think there are very few people in the world who are mustache twirling villains right every corporation every large governmental organization every charity organization all of these things are made up of individual people mm -hmm. And there are very few evil cabals at the top of these things trying to figure out how do we screw over the customers. Um, yeah, you get some problems in there occasionally with people who really just want to cover things up or people who make stupid mistakes and then you know are afraid to report them because I think we've all done stuff like that. Um, but by and large, you know, if you feel that the human race is probably generally composed of people who mean well or are trying to do good things – I think you have to acknowledge that a giant corporation is just made up of all these people who are trying to do the right things. Sometimes they do things for the wrong reasons, or sometimes they do things that they think are good ideas and turn out to be bad ideas. But, you know, viewing them through the cynical as like a corporation can never do anything good ever is, you know, kind of putting blinders on. Yeah, and I think in some of these efforts, Apple, I'm trying to figure out what Apple has to gain by following a, a particular course. I mean, they could make more money by not caring about environmental issues. Or when we, when there was a stockholders meeting and, and the guy from the right-wing group stood up and said, yes, you know, if, you, if you're not making money by following green tech, you should stop it. And, and Tim Cook just said, no, you know, we, we have concerns more than just making money. And we believe in this, and this is a policy that we're going to pursue, or human rights, or trying to do better with, uh, with labor overseas. Plenty of work needs to be done by Apple and everybody else. But at least they're talking about it. And maybe it was because they got called on it, and so they have to talk about it. But again, they could be that mustache-twirling corporation and just say, we're making a ton of money. We don't care. We're just going to do well, what we can. They, and retire. they could have even given like the obsequious answer to that guy. Like, oh, yeah, we'll look into it. But we think it currently outweighs, you know, the and then Deep Cook was like, no. <laughs> yeah. He just sort of flatly went after it and said, no, that's stupid. Like, we're, we're going to do this. 
Um, and, you know, that's, he, he seems to be a forthright guy, if nothing else. He may have ulterior motives, you don't know, but, like, I don't know. Everything, every interaction I've heard about with him just seems to be he may be, uh, you know, he could be a bit on the tough side, but he's also very transparent. And I think that's a good thing for the company overall. Absolutely. All right. Uh, and because we need to be transparent as well, I'm going to tell you that we are going to talk about go to meeting by Citrix, the powerfully simple way to meet and collaborate online whenever you need to, wherever you are. Good communication is crucial for any business, especially when the people you work with aren't in the same office, as is the case with a large number of us at the Macworld team. You need to be able to stay connected and meet with coworkers and clients wherever they are. And that's why millions of small business professionals rely on GoToMeeting by Citrix. And you should too. It's the proven solution for meeting and collaborating online. Here's how it works. With GoToMeeting, you can share the same screen to review documents, presentations, and other files in real time, making it easier for everyone to stay on the same page. And with built-in HD video conferencing, you just need a webcam to see each other face-to-face. GoToMeeting allows you to present, demonstrate, and just simply meet from anywhere, from any PC, Mac, tablet, or smartphone. The truth is, I use GoToMeeting for a lot of the communication I do inside as well as outside the office, and it's a lifesaver. But don't take my word for it. See why millions choose GoToMeeting. Start hosting your own face-to-face online meetings today. You can try it for free for 30 days. Just visit GoToMeeting.com, click the Try It Free button, and use the promo code MACWORLD. That's GoToMeeting.com, promo code MACWORLD. And now let's wrap up with just a couple of um, smallish items. So, although this could be a biggish item, uh, you mentioned something about Apple's uh, quarterly results. Yes. Oh yes, uh, yes. In fact, as you listen to this on Wednesday, Apple's quarterly results will be coming out this afternoon at uh, 5 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Pacific, um, and it's the second quarter of fiscal 2014. And I've written a little earnings preview piece that you can find on the site that just sort of goes over what you might expect from this quarter. It's not, you know, if you look back over the last three months, you might notice something. Not a lot of things happen Mm. in the world of Apple. Mm. So, you know, don't expect anything too blockbuster from this. I think you'll find that they continue to do good business, um, that they sold a lot of iPhones, a lot of iPads. Not as many as the previous quarter, which was the holiday quarter. And traditionally, they sell a ton more stuff in the holiday quarter because everybody's doing their Christmas shopping. And also, at that point, they had brand new models of everything right last fall. Um, so it sort of primed the holiday season to go out and buy new things. And there there have not been any really significant product announcements this spring. Apple's really shifted most of those to the summer and the fall uh, in preparation for the holiday season. So uh, they're probably, this will be a, a kind of a quiet one, I think. Um, but it is notable in at least one way, which is that it will probably be the last conference call where we hear from uh, the current CFO, Peter Oppenheimer, because Apple announced in uh, March, I believe, that he is retiring uh, in the fall of this year. And though he's sticking around until the fall in sort of an advisory cap uh, capacity, he's turning over the CFO duties to uh, the current controller, who has the name, I think, the rather fluid name, Luca Maestri. Um, who takes over in June, I think, and will probably thus be the voice that you hear on the July conference call. I expect he'll probably be on the conference call this time around as well. They had him on in January, although he didn't. He fielded one or two questions, but not a lot of stuff. Um, so we'll, we'll miss we'll miss Peter um, in his <laughs> soothing dulcet <laughs> tones. 
Now, is this um, the kind of thing that anybody can tune in on, or you have to sure. have the special access? You do not need any special access. In fact, if you go to, I think the easiest place to go is to either to Apple's PR page, which is apple.com slash PR, uh, and then look for the press release about the quarterly earnings, or investor.apple.com. You can probably find a link there. They do a live audio webcast. Anybody can tune in, listen if they want. Um, they can also follow along if they feel like it with our live blog. We'll have live coverage this afternoon of all the results. Um, I will be following the call along with uh, a few of our other contributors, and we'll keep you updated in case anything really incredible happens, like Tim Cook suddenly stands up on his desk and does the uh, "Oh, Captain, my Captain" speech from Dead Poet Society or something. I don't, I don't, I don't really know what what would be what would be classified as an exciting event in the financial conference call, but. There you have it. Well, you know, if the results are kind of dull, he may need to zazz it up a little bit, and maybe that will be how he goes well, about it. To the earlier point about him being straightforward, it is always very funny to listen to him on these calls because people, traditionally, the financial analysts who get to ask questions during this are always trying to suss out little details to try and figure out anything they can. And he usually does a pretty good job of, of shutting them down. He's, you know, he's got that sort of Calvin Coolidge you know, a terse, you know, laconic thing going on where people ask him these long, drawn-out, like, two-minute questions about, like, plan. You know, they're like, well, what are you going to do about a larger-screen iPhone? Uh, you see, we look at our research and see that all these people, and they'll go on and on and on. Mm-hmm. Look at Tim, he goes, no. <laughs> and then he'll just move on to the next thing. So, How about that big TV that I keep asking about? Gene, Gene. stop asking questions, Gene. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know why they just haven't set up a, a special filter just for Gene and the big TV question. But uh, He can listen to his own little conference call. I guess he can. Uh, okay, well, yes, I look forward to that, as I do every quarter to see Oh, it. I'm sure you do. Well, actually, it's, it's I just, exciting stuff. No, actually, I'd look at your result piece afterwards and go, oh, they made a lot of money again, didn't they? They made XX billions? Wow. Wow, look at them. Oh, and Amazing. look, their stock has just plummeted again. Surprise. Surprise. Uh, and then the last thing is um, we have heard, uh, allegedly, that Nike has fired its fuel band team, hardware team. And, of course, because we're interested in what this means for Apple, is that people have taken to the street saying, oh, my God, it means an iWatch. It's an iWatch. It's an iWatch. So how do they make that connection? Well, rather tenuously, I'm afraid. I'm, I mean, it, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, f- uh, Tim Cook serves on the Apple, uh, or sorry, Tim Cook serves on the Nike board of directors and has for many years, I think before he was even CEO. Um, and I wrote a piece a few months ago that talked about this a little bit because I think that Tim Cook was at one point, I think it was last year during the D conference or something, he talked about the Nike Fuel Band. It's like, oh, I've got a Nike Fuel Band. I really like it. It does this and this and this. Um, and so, you know, and, and Apple, of course, has historically had a very close relationship with Nike. They've mm-hmm. done the Nike and iPod fitness tracking stuff and the app and all that. So um, there are certainly close ties between those two companies. Um, and so a lot of people have suggested that because Nike is shutting down its division, it maybe it's because it knows something about what Apple is planning, or maybe Apple is planning to work with Nike on right. something like that. Um, I think it would have been more telling if, you know, all those people at Nike had moved over to Apple. I think you might have a close, like a, like a better line to look yeah. at there. Yeah. Um, and of course, Nike is sort of being evasive about, well, we didn't fire everybody. We just, you know, maybe some people left. But <laughs> uh, yeah, I, no one's going to say much at this point. It's not, it's not in and of itself anything significant. But I think maybe if you put it in the context of a lot of the other stuff that's happened over the last year, 
and you know put in a healthy dash of speculation you might be able to draw a line between these two things but uh it's it's really too early to say at this point yeah i think the timing is is interesting in that if you are going to speculate that nike technology is going to be in something like an iwatch that this would hint that it would be something that might happen in the next six to nine months um yes although if there's really going to be something nike technology i don't think it would, they would have kept those guys <laughs> Like, those guys know how to do all this stuff. Yeah, well, these are the hardware guys. So, I I I mean, the speculation is that Nike is still involved in this kind of technology, but focusing on the software side of it versus creating bands oh yeah it. sure because yeah why why would you have apple do the software side because <laughs> they know they don't know anything about software well um exercise yeah. software no i i mean i don't know it it's it's again it could be a coincidence it could be nothing more than it just happens to be the way things are going but you know maybe not i guess we'll see okay that's that's another one of those we will see um tea leaves kind of thing and look oh there they are and they they spell out i watch at the bottom of the cup and with that, we're done. I think we're done. So All right. it, well, it was wonderful chatting with you. It was a real pleasure to be back again this week. I'll see you next. No, well, oh wait, no, no. It's your your podcast now. So I hope to oh. see you next week. We'll see. I'll see you. <laughs> no, I'll raise you one and see you next week. Uh, and thanks to everyone for listening. And uh, we'll see somebody next week. And that wraps up another edition of the Macworld Podcast brought to you by MailRoot, the secure hosted email filtering service, and two Citrix products, ShareFile, the professional way to share files, and go to meeting the powerfully simple way to meet and collaborate online whenever you need to, wherever you are. Thanks very much for listening.